when I moved to Canada, we all came here as a group. So we all gathered at the airport. There were like three adults. So we, I remember we landed in Vancouver, which was nice. Vancouver is nice, you know, big city, not too cold. Uh, we stayed at, in a hotel. For me, it was kind of like, I like adventure. I like new stuff. So for me, it was like, hmm, okay, I guess this is my life now. Mentally, I'm very strong. I can switch. I can put it on and off at any point in time. I don't know how it happens, but it does happen. So when I left the airport, I was like, okay, now you're by yourself. You have to figure things out and you just have to be strong. Growing up, my mom wasn't really around, so I had to be an adult really, really fast. So I feel like I already built that persona about me, right? So it was always telling myself, you have to be strong. You don't have anyone else but yourself. So I've always had that mentality about myself. So any situation I find myself in, like I'm always ready for it. That is today's storyteller, Jessica Ntofon, introducing us to her life after moving to Canada from Nigeria as a teenager. One of the interesting things I enjoy about doing this show is how some of the most incredible stories find their way to me when I least expect. I was speaking to a fellow podcaster, Mita, of the Are You Me podcast about a year ago, I believe, and she mentioned a friend whose story she thought I would be interested in. She connected me with Jessica. We set up a time to speak last July, I believe. And this episode was conceived. I had been given a brief synopsis of a story, but I honestly wasn't prepared for the full story. It's a story of struggle, strength, and triumph. One that put a lot in perspective for me, and um, I'm sure it will do the same for you. I really don't want to keep going on. So I say, let's get back to Jessica's story. I remember landing in Vancouver. I'm like, okay, we're in this big city. This is my life now. We just have to keep going. We can't, there's like, there's no going back. Like we have to do this now. Doesn't mean I wasn't scared. Doesn't mean I wasn't worried, but you know, I had to put game face on. And it was really a culture shock. Like, white people, like, Asians, it was hard. But um, I adapted really quickly, I would say. And again, we had, like, adults, like, um, you know, helping us out, figuring things out for us. So it wasn't too bad. What was bad was when we had to leave Vancouver and go into a really, really small town where it was, like, minus 50 we like huge heaps of snow we didn't have a driver to drive us to school we had to walk almost a mile to go take the bus in the snow that was when i found it so difficult sleeping in a room with two other people always in your space that was when i had a really really difficult time going into high school because we had to do high school again right like grade 12 Going into high school with grade 12 with a whole new bunch of kids, we're the only, literally the only Black people in this small village. I would call it a village. <laughs> it was hard. 
let me let me let me be very honest with you. I was very naive, like I was very ignorant. I mean, we went to growing up, we went to Italy, like Italy, once here and there. But I was re- I was really small, right? So I was with my parents, so I couldn't really differentiate anything at that point in time. But now, growing up and like figuring all these things out by myself, it was kind of like, oh my god, okay. So I'm I'm a different color, and th- like I didn't I didn't know anything about that. It was when I went to grade twelve and I was in this high school that things started like unfolding. Like I would walk into a class and like I would be stared at or we're going into groups for a class activity and I would be the only one left behind. It was tough. And even all of the people we came to Canada with, we had to be separated, right? Because it was either they had to do grade 12, I mean, grade 11 or different classes. So we weren't really, we weren't really always together. 2007 August I moved to Canada right um September was good uh you know trying to get to you know you know the snow the weather you know my body started feeling weird this is literally the beginning I kept quiet about it I was like you know what I've been in Nigeria most of my life. I'm in a new country. Obviously, it's going to be weird. And my body is just reacting to that change, right? October, it got worse. I still hadn't told anybody about this. I'm not the one to always tell people about problems. If I see a problem, I want to fix it. I don't want to burden anybody. Like, you know, I want to be responsible for taking care of that problem, right? So... I still wasn't saying anything to anybody. Like literally, I would wake up at night, go into the bathroom and like throw up and not say anything to anybody. This was October. I was so sick, so, so sick. Like my eyes were yellow, so yellow. And when I go to the bathroom, the color was different. Like everything was just different. And I'm still telling myself, Jessica, your body is just trying to get used to this new place. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I literally was dragging myself. Like I would sleep. Like I wouldn't wake up to, you know, get ready for school. Like I would sleep so for long hours. And, you know, the lady, the our guardian at that point that was with us, you know, would always say, Jessica, like, are you okay? Are you good? I'm like, oh, I'm fine. I would wake up and drag myself to school and I just wasn't feeling right. And even though I had my sister, you know, there with me in the same house, we're in a, we're in that close. So there's no one I, I was, I could open up to where I was trying to catch the bus someday to go to school. And I remember trying to get into the bus and the next thing I was waking up at the hospital. When I woke up, they said, oh, you you slumped. And I was like, oh, okay, what happened? And then the doctor walks in and says, you're Jessica, right? I'm like, yeah, yeah, last name, Tofan, yeah, yeah. And he's like, how are you still moving? Like, how are you, how are you still here? And I'm like, um, I don't know what's going on. He says, 
your liver numbers are way elevated. Your liver numbers, there's the ALTs and then it's the AL, whatever, whatever. So let me say an ALT number should be, be 126. Mm-hmm. Mine was 2000s. Yeah. Like all my liver enzymes, like my liver blood work, they were like, they're in the thousands. It, it's were meant to be in the hundreds. I know one of them is 122. One of them is meant to be at like 40. So, so from 40, we're talking about like a thousand here. And he says, how have you been feeling? And I'm like, honestly, I've been feeling really sick. He's like, you look sick. Your eyes are yellow. Your body color is changing. They did a whole bunch of, they even did like an HIV test and they couldn't figure out what was causing this issue. So they gave me a, you know, a bunch of meds, go back home. And I was fine for a little bit, but then November, yo, it came back with such a full force that like, sometimes I would be sitting and I would just start bleeding through my nose. My front part of me was bleeding. I went back to the hospital and it was like, we can't figure out what's going on because it was a small town, right? So a small hospital, they could do what they had to do. Like they did ultrasounds, like MRI. Like this was my first time going into all these machines. This was my first time doing so much blood work and it was so painful. Like half of the time, like I was in so much pain. I was always telling myself, like, I just want to like bury myself. Like, I don't want anyone to touch me at this point in time. I did not even know, like, this is just the beginning. You have a long way to go. So they said, at this point, we have to take you to a bigger city to figure out what's going on. We had to go to a city called Edmonton, a university hospital. Um, went in there, they did a whole bunch of tests. I remember a friend going there with me. I remember the Greyhound bus, like I was bleeding at, at this point. Now someone had to help me to walk cause I couldn't walk properly on my own at this point. So we got to Edmonton, this big city, we got to the university hospital. I remember walking into the hospital. I felt like I was in like a museum. Like the hospital was so huge. They did a whole bunch of tests and they were like, we have to admit you. And I remember my friend at that point called the guardian and said, okay, so they're saying we have to, they have to admit her. They're like, okay, yeah, yeah, sure, whatever. They admitted me and I was laying down. And I remember two doctors walked in, you know, they had a, a piece of paper. I remember them flipping the paper, trying to get a history about me. And they were like, so you're new to Canada. When did you get here? Um, you know, give them 2007, August. How have you been feeling? Um, where are your parents? Are you alone here? I'm like, just my sister. My parents are back home. I came here as a group. They walked back out. And then two of them came back in, but with three other doctors. So now we have five people in the room with me. They were like, Jessica, you're really, you're really sick. Do you know that? You know, I'm young. And I'm like, no, I'm like, I mean, I've been feeling weird, but they were like, yes, Jessica, you're, you're really sick, but we're going to take good care of you. They kept saying that. And like, you don't need to be scared. We're going to take good care of you. So they called my guardian and I guess they spoke over the phone and they came back in. Five doctors now came back in with two other doctors but this time they were wearing blue these two other doctors were wearing blue at that point i didn't know what he meant but now i know that they were surgeons 
I remember them saying, so Jessica, we've gone through everything. We've done a whole bunch of tests and you need a, a liver transplant. And I'm like, what is that? And they're like, so your liver is really sick. It's causing you to um, get really, really sick fast. That's why, you know, you can't walk. At this point, I was bedridden. Everything is looking really, really bad right now. And you need a liver transplant. And I'm like, okay, so how does that work? They essentially told me, like, we have to get a liver from somebody else. You know, at this point, it's like, I don't know what that means. Where do you guys get it from? You know, I'm asking all these questions. And then they're saying, if you don't get this transplant, you are going to die. Point blank. That's how they told me. And at this point, I start crying. At this point, we can't even put you on the list. And I'm like, what list? When people do want to get transplanted, they have to put you on a list, right? And if you're on top of that list, you get called. But at this point, because you're so sick, there isn't even a list for us to put you in. Like, you have to go, like, right now. So, yeah, and I'm like, okay, okay, I'm here. I'm fretting. And then I'm like, so what is the cause? And they're like, it's autoimmune hepatitis. And I'm like, okay, explain. So this is this is literally your own body attacking your organs. And I'm like, what does that really like? Can you guys talk to me like a, you know, like a five-year-old? So it's like, you know how you have your immune system? Your immune system is helping you. It's meant to help you fight your diseases, right? Like when you catch a cold and all that type of stuff. But your own immune system is overactive. It's looking for something to do and is now attacking your organs. And the organs it's choosing to attack is the most important organ in our bodies, which is your liver. So your own body is fighting against you. At this point, like health insurance is something that I'm still trying to figure out because we just moved, right? So we're now like late December. Like my mom now has to know about all of this stuff, right? They had to put me on life support machine because like I'm not responding to treatment. I'm really, really sick. They're trying to do all the tests to find me a new, like a transplant. So, you know, they have to do blood type. They have to do all of this stuff. And they're not finding a match as quick as possible. So I'm getting sicker and they have to put me on life support. I think I'm on life support from what they told me, what I can remember for, I think, three to four days. Them putting me on life support is costing them money, right? Because now I have no health insurance. So it's like we can't put you on life support for X amount of time. Now they call my mom and now my mom is like, so you've been sick since September. Why is it just now? we're finding out about like all of this and it's like and I'm, I'm and it's like me saying at that point in time it's like oh I didn't want to disturb anybody it's like what like what do you mean you don't want to burden anybody right somehow I get off life support and then immediately they're like okay we found you a match we have to go now like we don't even know how you're still alive people have been waiting for a transplant and people have died waiting for a transplant. Your numbers are elevated. We're in, talking like in the thousands now, you have to make this decision. So they come in, they talk to me about the transplant. They talk to me about my scar, 
how I want my scar to look. They bring you like a like a booklet. All these decisions I had to make by myself because my mom wasn't here, right? Because everything is happening so fast. She has to get visa. She has to get all of that stuff. And the guardian is not with me. So I'm in the hospital with this huge thing on my head by myself, 18, almost going on 19 years old in a new country. I remember saying, so we have the DNR form. I'm like, what is a DNR form? It's like, oh, so do not resuscitate. So if something happens, do you want us to resuscitate you or do you want us not to resuscitate you? I'm like, what the hell? How am I even meant to make that decision? Like, I have no idea what you guys are talking about. So they bring in all these nurses, they bring in a psychiatrist, they bring in counselors, they bring in all these nurses. And I'm young. Like, you know, I I remember always people always walking into me. It's like, you're so young. You know, where's your family? It's like, I'm here by myself. So I guess um, I had like a lot of compassion from a lot of people at the hospital. Like they became my family, right? Because I'm the youngest person getting a transplant in this unit. I have no family. I'm new to this country. I literally came like, what, three months ago? And um, this just happened to me. And I remember the only one time my sister and the guardian came to see me. And that was it, right? Because they were like, they had to go to school. I remember they came to see me. And I remember my sister crying. Like at that point, trust me, no one knew how serious it was because they didn't know what a transplant was. They didn't know like your liver could get really sick. So they just thought, oh, okay, well, she's in the hospital. They're going to fix her. And that's it. This is the same thing I was thinking, right? So I signed the papers, you know, I got shaved. I had to empty my, my gut and it was like, boom, boom, boom. Everything happened so fast. And I remember them wheeling me into the OR. The doors opened and I looked to my right and I saw all sorts of knives and scissors. I started crying. Like I started shaking. They get me into the bed. They spread out my arms. I had like at least eight to 10 people like working on my body. They had to put the catheter in. And I remember them trying to say, okay, Jessica, now this is going to go into your vagina. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Don't put that into my vagina. I'm still a virgin. (laughs) (laughs) I remember them having to call my mom at that moment in the OR. (laughs) My mom was like, don't worry, they're going to take care of you. It's, it's, they're not going to do anything down there. They're just trying to make you feel better. And then I think I calmed down and they got back to work. Eight to 10 people on my body, arms spread apart, me laying down on the table. Um, they put like a, a shower cap over my head, like a blue one, legs wide open, took out the gown I was wearing. They took it all apart, started like rubbing stuff on my belly They had to tape my eyes. And then I remember them saying, okay, now, Jessica, we're going to start and we're going to inject you with something. And in 10, 9, 8, 7, I was gone. I remember waking up like 14 hours after because I had complications, apparently. And I remember waking up in ICU, not remembering what had just happened. I had all sorts of wires and tubes. You know how you have that power nap and then you like wake up and like, what the fuck? You just like kind of get out of bed. That was what happened to me. 
I was like trying to like get out of bed and I saw the nurses rushing. They're like, whoa, 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 Jessica. I think I pulled like a wire or something and then something happened. And then it was like, I had a coma. I don't know what happened. I was in a coma for at least two weeks. I woke up from the coma and they told me, oh, even, you know, we, we did this transplant, but now you're just coming out of a coma. And then my mom at that point, had already come and everything so she was she was there i woke up to see my mom i had my transplant 2008 january 29th because of so much complications and i was all new to this i was in the hospital for about let's say five months and then when i left the hospital i had to go into outpatient so it's literally like you've left the hospital but we still want you to be close to the hospital so the hospital had like a like a like a hostel right like a hostel so they put me literally like it's like a building close to the hospital that was where I was staying to fully get adapted to the whole situation so I was still in technically still in the hospital but not in the hospital bed like not in the hospital setting they got me a room and all that type of stuff I was still recovering there because after transplant like it's a process so they discharge you but you still have to because it's a it's a new organ right so it's a literally a foreign thing in your body so blood work has to be done Every week, the staples are still attached. They don't take out the staples just immediately because it has to heal properly. They turn out like nerves, tissues, everything is torn. They're waiting for all of that to heal. So there's a part of my belly I can't feel. They have to check you every week to see how the liver is, is doing, taking my meds. In total, I would say eight months. And then they tell you, okay, now everything is looking good. When you get back to your home, we still need you to do X, Y, Z. If I would be really honest, I would rather have 10 transplants than have the recovery. It's harder than getting the transplant because your whole life has changed. I have to take my meds at least three times a day at the same time. I cannot forget to take these meds. If I do, my body is going to fight this new organ. This is how they explained it to me. So let's say I take my meds at 8.30 in the morning. I have to take it at 8.30 p.m. at night again. I don't take it at 8.30 p.m. Like my immune are like little soldiers. So they, they start coming back up and overreact and start eating out my organs. Wow. So when I take those meds, they suppress my immune system. It's called immunosuppressant medication. So that way, when my immune is suppressed, it doesn't leave any room to even come back up and start like, oh, there's nothing suppressing us. Let's go have some fun with her organs. That's literally it. 2008, 2009, I'm like, I think I'm ready to start my life. I go into school. 
doing college. I'm young. I'm like, what, in my prime, 1920? I'm figuring out myself. I'm trying to look pretty. I'm trying to be hot. I'm trying to do all types of parties and, you know, all that type of stuff. So I'm like, I'm fine. But no, I wasn't fine because I had to keep taking these medications, which I was not taking them. And I had to keep up with hospital appointments, which at that time, I'm young. Like, you know how when you're young, you just want to do a lot of stuff, right? Literally, that was just it. Like, I was having fun, doing things. I mean, I would take my medication here and there. Let me say I did not know how important my life had changed when I had that transplant. Just because I had the transplant, it didn't fix anything. The transplant is just a treatment. It wasn't like we've given you Tylenol and it's over. No, the transplant is a treatment, right? It doesn't fix what was the problem. This was something I did not understand. So... I'm living my life. I wasn't taking my medications here and there. I finished high school. So these medications were making me add a lot of weight. And right now I'm like 24 where guys are like, I'm starting to figure out like, you know, oh, guys, I'm liking guys. And, you know, even though I was big, like I still had like a lot of guys, you know, come to me, talk to me. And now I'm so concerned about my weight because of the medications and because of the steroids, part of the medication I was taking, I was taking steroids. So I was, I was at like 278 pounds and I'm seeing like a lot of guys and like, I'm getting into that whole fix about, you know, liking a guy and all that type of stuff. And I look at myself and I'm like, nah, we have to do something about it. And then I remember not really taking my medications anymore and not like attending any of my um, appointments or doing blood work or any of that stuff. And I'm losing the weight. I'm getting way more attention from men. I'm loving it. I'm partying. 2013, I remember I was in Toronto at that point and my body started acting weird, but it was like, hmm. I guess I'm just tired. I'm sick. It's whatever. And then I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go to the hospital. So I go to the hospital. I remember doing blood work and the doctor came in and said, your liver numbers are high. And I'm like, fuck. More from Jessica after this short break. For more of Jessica's story, head out to patreon.com slash where you'll find extra stories that didn't make the public feed. A big thank you to everyone that is subscribed on Patreon and has continuously supported what I'm doing with this show. I appreciate you more than you know, and I cannot wait to continue giving you more exclusive content this season. If you're no longer subscribed due to my hiatus over the last year and a half, things are back to normal now, and I can't wait to see you again. I have a lot in store for Patreon this season, so if you'd like to be a part of the family, the link again is patreon.com slash Wally, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash w-o-l-e. Now, back to Jessica's story. They're like, so we see you've had a transplant, okay, why did you have the transplant? I told them, you know, autoimmune disease, blah, blah, blah. And then the doctor says, well, we're seeing the same trend 
your liver numbers are are high, really, really high. Not in the thousands, but this doesn't look right. At that point in time, I, you know, I start taking my medications again and I'm like, oh my God, I don't want to be sick again. I don't want to be sick. I start like trying to go for all my appointments. You know, I'm trying to like do good again to my, to the organ. Right. And at that time I was in Toronto, their healthcare system there, you have to literally like pay for everything. And I didn't have coverage at that. Like I didn't have the, um, the coverage meant for Toronto at that point. Like it was just a tricky situation. So I had to start paying for these meds and they were expensive. Like my meds for a month cost like five grand. So I wasn't keeping up with them. At the time, the nurse was so nice to me that she would give me like bottles that she had had. So I was taking them. At some point they said, okay, we have to do a biopsy. So a biopsy is, um, I don't know if you know, but they go in and they cut a part of your liver to test it and see what's really going on. If they can't really get like enough information from the blood work, right? They just want to get like an accurate, accurate information from the cutout liver, right? So they do this test and they come back and said, my liver is not doing good. And then I do my research and I see that like Alberta, that's another province from Ontario, which is another state or province, has better health care, has jobs. And I'm like, you know what? I think it's time for me to live Toronto. Like, I, I want to move. I was staying with my sister. And then I just made the conscious decision to move. I moved to Calgary. Um, that's in Alberta. Remember when I was in Edmonton? Edmonton is in Alberta. That was when I first moved to Canada. I had the transplant in Edmonton. So when I was, after like my eight months in the hospital, um, 2009, I wanted to go to school. I wanted to leave Alberta. And I remember my doctor saying, the ones who kind of like handled the transplant, they said, I don't think you should move. You've just had a huge transplant. We need you here to monitor you. We know your history. Like I said, I'm stubborn. I'm like, nah, I want to move. I want a, a different lifestyle. And I moved. And then this was all the partying, the negligence happened, right? So now again, when they had told me for the second time that my liver was acting up and everything, and I was trying to make up for lost times, I decided to move back. So when I moved back, I came back here. I saw the same doctors and they were really mad. They were like, we gave you a new organ. People have died waiting and you just came and we gave you a new organ. And they said, you have to start taking care of yourself. You have to start going for all your appointments. You, this was now 2014. I had moved 2014, September. I met the doctors. You have to start taking care of yourself. And within myself at that point, I knew my body was acting up and I could remember the same thing was that happened the first time. I could feel it again. Now it's like I'm scared, right? Because I haven't been doing the things they had told me to do because I didn't know it was that serious. I mean, I had the transplant. You guys cut me open. I should think that would fix the problem, but it did not. Like I said, it was a treatment. Like, you know, I had to take care of this new organ. So I was dragging myself 2014, dragging myself 2015, working, going to school, making up for lost time, taking my meds. But the damage was already done. Again, it was happening slowly. The damage was done. 
not only was the damage done to my liver, but now the damage was done to my kidneys. My liver was sick, my kidney was sick. Twenty eighteen, I heard it again. You need a new liver, but this time you need a new liver transplant and you need a new kidney transplant. This time I was gonna go on the list because it was it was happening very, very slow. Like I was still going to work and everything, but like at least every time I was at work, at least like twice in two weeks, I would nine one one would come to my workplace because I would either like faint or you know just fall really sick i had to be hospitalized like at least every month or every other week i was in the hospital it was it was nothing even new to me anymore that was like my second home honestly i was tired i did not want to be alive anymore it was a lot oh my god so many hospital visits so many things to keep up with so many meds to keep up with it was tiring. From 2014 up until 2018, I was trying to keep things up. It was exhausting. I was always in the hospital. At least in a week, I would have like four appointments. It's like, when does it ever end? So when they had told me I was going to get a new transplant and I was really sick, a part of me was like, do I really want to be on the list? Do I really want to go through this all over again? recovery, taking meds, hospital appointments. Am I really ready to take care of two organs? It was a mind battle. I had like people who were like, oh, you have to be strong. You have to be like, do you know what it is to be strong? The only people that were really like privy to this were my doctors because they deal with this type of stuff. Every time, how is your mental health? Are you okay? We know what you're going through. And I'm I'm the youngest person they've had to deal with, right? I've known these people, this team of doctors that are now like my family, close to 10, 12 years now. So they know me. They know I'm stubborn. They really, really know me. I was ready to die. Like I had prepared my mind. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go on the list. And I know people that have died on the list. Not only am I waiting for one organ, but two organs. How is that ever going to happen? There are like thousands of people on the list. I'm never going to make it. I told myself, like, I'm never going to make it. I'm too sick. I was on dialysis for about eight months. So my I wasn't peeing. Like I couldn't pee. Like it was like I would go to the bathroom and it would be so painful to pee. Nothing would even come out. I couldn't pee for about eight months. Several times, several times I had I had begged to die. I told the nurses, I'm like, you guys should just like sometimes I wouldn't even go for dialysis because I was like, what's the point? Like I'm in so much pain. I was all swollen up. I looked pregnant because I was carrying this huge fluid inside of my belly. I wasn't peeing. I mean, I would do the number two here and there, but it wasn't like, it wasn't anything. It was hard. At this point, I asked if she was romantically involved with anyone and if her sickness affected that area of her life. Because my health was a job, it was so much work and stress 
and I knew because my friends had like boyfriends or situationships and I saw the stress that came with that. I didn't want to have anything to do with that. You know, I mean, I would, I would date, see people here and there, but when it came to getting close, I would immediately like eject myself out of that type of situation. But it wasn't up until 2018, I met my now boyfriend (laughs) and that was the first thing I told him. I'm like, I'm a sick child. So whatever this is, like, let's just have fun. 2018, uh, we met and I, I guess things got out of control and we fell in love. And 2018 fall, now you could tell I was getting sick. I couldn't really do stuff anymore. And then 2019, I had to go on dialysis and he was still there. I remember telling him, I'm like, you can leave at any point in time because what you're about to go through with me, even for myself, is is, is a lot. Not to talk about, you know, I, it wouldn't be fair if I would let this relationship continue. And if this relationship has to continue, I'm not trying to rush anything. That's That's just the type of person I am. I like to... I'm very straightforward. I like to get things just right off the bat. I'm like, I told him, I'm like, I don't want it to feel like this is rushed, but like, I want you to tell your family or your mom that like we're together and this is the burden I'm carrying because we're not talking about a headache. We're not talking about a tummy, a stomach pain. We're talking about like a long-term disease you're going to be a part of that. And I remember him saying, "Eh, it's nothing, you know, it's okay. I'll be here. (laughs) And I'm like, no, trust me. Like I'm going to be really sick to the point where I'm going to have like huge ass feet, huge ass belly. I'm going to be big at some point and it's going to be rough. I was like, yeah, I know. I love you. He went back to Nigeria. He told his mom about me, told his mom how sick I was still did not know how serious it was up until I remember I was like you know what why don't you come to one of my appointments so I remember him coming with me and we're going to see because now I had two different teams of doctors I had the liver team and I had the kidney team because I was doing I was it was like I was dealing with two different organs right Mm -hmm. so I remember him coming to the kidney appointment and the kidney doctor says Cause I didn't want like, like, I do not want to do dialysis. I was like, no, I'm not going to do dialysis. I'm going to, I just, I, I want to die. Like it, there's no point. Like, you know, I'm going to live out this slow sickness until when the organs are tired and I'm just going to give it up. I don't want to do any treatment. I don't want, I don't want to do anything. I just want to let it ride out till the end point. And he came with me to that appointment and he and the doctor says, so Jessica, I, we, we know we don't want to do dialysis and we, we appreciate that. We, we can respect that. But if you don't do this now, your body is going to get so big and it's going to explode and you're going to die. And I think when he heard that, I remember us getting home and he was like, what the fuck? It's like, is this how you sit through all your appointments? And he's like, how do you even do it? And I think from then on, he knew how serious everything was. And this was 2019. 
We met 20, 2018. It was all good. I was still, you know, doing my day-to-day stuff. But 2019, where when that's when things really got bad, bad. Eventually, I agreed to do dialysis, right? You know, after like he convinced me, my sister convinced me and I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. I did dialysis. And I think that was when he knew how serious it was going with me to dialysis, going to see how they filter my blood. I had lost so much weight. I think that was when he was like, shit, you can still leave. Like, I wouldn't even be upset with you. Like, trust me, like, it's a lot. Like, we're in for a huge ride. And he said, no, he's he's going to stick it out with me. Sometimes I would be in dialysis and he would read me a book or like, you know, or I would be like throwing up and he would like hold my hair or hold my hands, pick me up after because dialysis used to last for at least four to five hours. Every time after dialysis, I would crave McFlurry and fries. <laughs> I don't know what it was. But I would always crave that. And this was after work. And I knew how tired he was. And he would drive to get anything I was craving. After dialysis, I would like randomly crave puff puff or plantains or McFlurry. And I knew he he was so tired. And he would drive all the way, get me everything I was craving. Or sometimes if I'm done dialysis, I would take an Uber afterward. Like as he's driving home, he'll be like, what do you want to eat? He will come back home. He wouldn't even take off his clothes. He would make me dinner. Oh man, he was there. So because I had had the first transplant, right? So like a board of doctors, every Thursday, they would come and um, present a patient to the board of transplant, I think, team or whatever. And they make a decision of if you qualify to get a transplant or not. And because I had been so negligent, I was so worried that like I wouldn't be qualified to get on the list. Right. And in as much as I was tired and I just didn't want to deal with all of this stuff again, a part of me was still like, I just hope I qualify. Right. Like, I don't want to be presented to the board and seem like ungrateful because I was young. I literally did not know anything that was going on. But now I'm almost like 30. I know how serious this is. And I was praying they would just give me a chance. Do you get what I mean? Mm Because these doctors have worked so hard for me. They have loved me unconditionally. They have taken good care of me. And all I did was be stupid and young. But they understood that, right? And they were like, okay, you know what? You're going to go through this process to get you on the list. And we would present you to the transplant board and they would make a decision. I did all the tests. I did everything. 2019, fortunately, I got a call from my transplant coordinator telling me I had been put on the list. And at any point in time now, I would get called for both. They said they might do the liver first. If they don't get a match for my kidneys, they would do the kidneys after. But they're hoping for the two organs at the same time. And I'm like, I'm going to have two transplants at the same time. She was like, yeah. So I got put on the list um, 2019 December. 
I was happy, but then a part of me was like, I'm going to wait like years. This is going to be a long, long, long wait because I know there are a lot more people on the list waiting before me. And I've been just put like, what, 2019? There are probably people who have been there since like 2014 when I had been, when I moved to Calgary, like to this new, to back to the city. And, you know, they told me I was sick. Like, I'm sure there are people who have been waiting since then. And, you know, I just thought it was going to be a long, long, long wait. And I think that's the one thing I was worried about. Like, I just wanted it to end. I was prepared for it to be a long wait because I knew I wouldn't wait too long because I knew my body was leaving me. Like even my boyfriend would, was like, sometimes he would not sleep at night just to make sure I was like breathing and alive. Like that's how bad it was. But it wasn't a long wait because 2019, I was put on the list and in February... 2020, I got called that they had found a match and I had to be on my way right now to get the transplant. I remember that day so well. My boyfriend and I, we got into a huge ass argument. (laughs) That's actually the funny thing. I remember charging my phone. We're about to go for dialysis. I can't even remember what it was about. And at that point, it was kind of like, you know what? I'm done with this relationship. Blah, blah, blah. You were had. It was, it was, it was, it was a bad day. It was a very, very bad day. And I remember I was about to go for dialysis and I got my phone. I took it out of the charger, ready to go into the car. And I saw a missed call, but it was a no number. And then I was like, Ugh, whatever. I knew, I remember it was cold. So I had to get a scarf. Unfortunately, I was holding the phone this time, right? So I heard it ring. And it was still a a no number. So I picked it up and it was like, hi, is this Jessica and Toffin? And I'm like, yeah, this is she. It's hi, my name is uh, Michelle. I'm calling from the university transplant. And um, I called earlier on, has your transplant team called you? And I'm like, no, if it's about my dialysis, I'm on my way. She's like, oh no, it's not about that. We just found you a match. And I'm like, are you serious? She's like, yeah. I'm like, no. Like, I was like, stop fucking with me. Like, literally, like, she she laughs. She's like, we found both matches. So we need you to go for dialysis still. And we need you to drive up to Edmonton because we found you a match for your liver and kidney transplant. And where you're going to have the transplant tonight, uh, 1.30 a.m. This was on a Sunday. I kept saying, stop, like, are you serious? Stop, like, are you serious? And she's like, yes, Jessica, like, I was shocked. I was dumbfounded because I had just put on the list 2019 December, like almost ending of December. And then February on the 23rd, they were calling me 2020. So it wasn't even up to two months I was on the list. And I got a call that day, that Sunday. I'm actually having chills. Like, yeah, it was, (laughs) well, I was lost for words. Still lost for words when I think about it. I went in at like 3.30 a.m. I had the transplant at that point in time. Yeah, both transplants. Yeah. So that took hours, hours, a whole day, I think. When I woke up, I was in a lot of pain. But then I felt so relieved. I don't know if it was because I could pee. Like I could finally pee. It was such a good feeling. Oh my God. 
I couldn't talk because I had like tubes, like the life support tubes all the way down. So I could only communicate by writing. I was in the ICU for... Usually you're meant to be in the ICU for two, three days, but I was in in the ICU for at least seven days because, again, I had like a, like a painful recovery, right? First five days, I couldn't talk. I could only communicate through writing. And immediately you could tell I started looking good. Like my skin was clear. Like my eyes were clear. And as much as I, I was in pain, I felt well. You know, my insides felt so good. I could pee. I could. It was such a good feeling. And this time I was aware. Like when I woke up, I was aware, like, okay, I had had my transplant and everything was good now. I woke up to my sister and my boyfriend there. So waking up this time and being fully aware of where I am. Sometimes I, I look back. And I wish I had a little more time to be sick, if I'm being very honest. When you're that sick, especially, you know, with disease and failed organs, that's the only thing you have, right? You don't have to think about any other thing. Do you get what I mean? You're solely focused on that, especially when you've prepared your mind to die. That's a lot, so after preparing your mind to die and not making it, not making the list, and miraculously, you make the list, you have the transplant, now you're well. Like, I'm so confused about a lot of things. I'm so scared about going back to the things I love to do because my health has pretty much taken over my life, like, you know? And I feel like when I want to give my attention to something else, I get so scared that like that something else might take over all my attention and then I forget about my health. And then that scares me because I don't want to have a transplant anymore. I wish I could not take meds. I wish I could not visit the hospital at least one day of the week. I wish I could just wake up in the morning and go. But my life is not like that. I can't just wake up in the morning and go. Like I have to wake up in the morning take my meds. I remember the one time I was driving to go see a friend and at a stoplight, I'm like, fuck. I'm like literally almost five minutes there. And I'm like, fuck, I forgot my meds. I had to drive all the way back to get my meds. That's the life I'm living. If I'm at a function or anything, you see me popping up pills and taking my meds. Like I can't just get up and go. If I have to travel, I have to go book appointments to see my doctors, make sure everything is okay. Yeah, man, it's a lot. My body is so fragile to the point where earlier on this year, I went to the gym and I was good. Like I was like lifting weights, doing everything. And I got back from the gym that day around 6, 12 a.m. I woke up and the whole bed was wet with like high fever. And I was like, I had like diarrhea. I was like so sick. And I kept telling my boyfriend, I'm like, nah, I'm not going to go to like emergency. I know when I tell myself I have to go to emergency, but I was still telling myself like, nah, 
it's just a little whatever here. Like, it's not going to be that serious. The next day, my body, like my muscles were hurting me. I was like, okay, you know, I think it's time to go to the hospital. And I went to the hospital and they did a whole bunch of tests. They were like, we have to admit you. So immediately they found out I was a transplant patient. They're like, okay, yeah, like this is, we have to admit you and find out what's going on, right? And then I remember the doctors coming in and saying, I had an E. coli infection that went into my blood. And I'm like, E. coli infection? Like, how? Like, what happened? Like, I was fine. Like, I was literally at the gym. I, like, ran, like, almost, like, three, five miles, lifted weights. And now I'm, like, sick, like, literally the next day. Like, yeah, it's just bad luck. Something went wrong in your guts. And that's, like, that's how fragile my body is. I get sick over, like, the littlest things. I don't know why. It's a tough life, and it's something that I have to live with for the rest of my life. A huge thank you to Jessica for sharing her story with me. I've interviewed so many people over time, but this was the first time I had to take a break during the interview to gather myself at some point. I'm always in awe of our resolve as humans and how powerful we are when life throws these things at us. I know many of us have had to dig deep to fetch strength from our reserve in the last two years with everything that's happened around the world. And I hope this story was some sort of reminder for someone to keep pushing. A special thank you to Mita as well, who introduced me to Jessica, as I said earlier. If you'd like to check out her podcast, please look up the Are You Me podcast on your favorite podcast platform and show some love to them over there. I hope you enjoyed the story as much as you could have, all things considered. Don't forget to tell your friends that the podcast is back. Please rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts and now Spotify so more people could come across the show. It really, really helps. Don't forget to find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram. On Twitter, it is MomentsPod. That's M-O-M-E-N-T-S-P-O-D. And on Instagram, it is In These Moments Pod. You can also find me on there. Let me know what you think about the episode. Share the podcast with your friends. I would love to get your response on this episode and um, on how you enjoyed the story. If you'd like to support me and what I do with the show, you can head to Patreon at patreon.com slash and subscribe to one of the tiers on there. A lot of work and effort goes into bringing you these stories. I mean, a lot of work goes into one episode itself. And, um, and it's just me doing everything. So your support is always appreciated. And uh, with that being said, the episode is over. Thank you so much for listening. It's good to be back. I feel like I'm going to keep saying it's good to be back for the next few episodes. But it's good to be back. Let me know what you think of the episode. Take care of yourself. Look out for your health. Take care of people around you. I'll be back with you in two weeks. If you're on Patreon, you are going to get the extra from this story very soon. And um, yeah, take care of yourself. See you in two weeks. And I'll be back with another story. Bye.